we always say seat time is king so sit on down and listen in to motorsports tech talk with your hosts brian and eric eric how's it going doing all right you know uh one of those kind of productive weekends kind of not you know Mm -hmm. a lot of cleaning Mm -hmm. i mounted one go-kart tire so i know that's pretty impressive uh, go ahead and yeah, stay yeah. seated for that by hand, um, <laughs> which is a huge pain in the ass. You, you can go find YouTube videos of people like changing these tires by mm-hmm. hand, and it's a complete fucking joke. I don't know how they make it look so easy, but as you can imagine, these baby ass tires that are slicks, so they're super fucking mm-hmm. stiff, are real hard to rip off the wheel. And shove another one <laughs> on. Um, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and then I, you know, I removed the steering isolator out of my daily because it felt to me as if it was going, as if you know the the isolator portion of that was just completely blown out. So I welded that solid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kids at home. Uh, you know, just. Uh, don't listen to me, right? The steering system's a safety critical system. Don't go welding on it if you don't know what you're doing. But all of that said, uh, I believe you had a much more action-packed and exciting weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, first race is spec me out of season. Um we did it did uh i was able to get some help from my uh my co-host over here to to get to get my diff in the car um yeah, boy that, that was clutch uh got we able to rebuild rebuild it get it in there uh you know finish the trans swap because i was i mean most of the stuff that had to be done on the trans swap was mainly things that were in the way um of the diff too. So just mainly waiting on the diff there, but got it all in, of course, left it all last minute. The, did the alignment left at, uh, it was like 10 o'clock, 10 30. And then did the seven hour drive. We, we gained, gain an hour though. So it was effectively a six hour <laughs> drive, although it's still seven hours of driving. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I got in at like four thirty AM. Luckily I, I was running the practice day. So I, Got two hours of sleep and then just yeah drove the practice day. I didn't crash in anything surprisingly. I I, uh, I definitely didn't feel sharp. Uh, you know, felt like I might not really pass out, but you know, it, it was like everything was in slow motion except for it wasn't. So my hands were in slow motion, <laughs> but <laughs> but everything else was not. <laughs> yeah, but got. After the practice day, passed out at like six thirty after we had dinner and just slept all the way till the next morning, basically. And then I was all good to go for the races. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, unfortunately, I found that my my new diff ratio actually didn't really help anything. If anything, it might have hurt. At least at this track, um, I seem to have. At least look quickly looking the, at the data. I lost three miles an hour, peak miles an hour uh, on the straight. But that's a part of that could. I mean, that's a lot in a spec series with zero horsepower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in Miata, three. If you go three miles an hour faster in Miata, it's like you know, you should throw a party. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, it's it's a lot of extra speed. You know, it's it's a higher percentage increase. You know, when you're only going from like 90 miles an hour to 93, that's is a bigger jump than 150 to 153, right? Dude, I, I see so. pro drivers sweating a, uh, you know, two kilometer an hour difference between some of them at the end of a straight. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and those are like high horsepower cars. So this is, I mean, that's, that is actually huge. Yeah. Yeah. So part of it, it, it it's the, the track didn't seem as grippy as it was uh, in October. Uh, we had really good conditions in uh, last year in October um, enough for the, the track record to be set. So, uh, everyone was quite a bit, a bit slower this year, just a little slippery. It was sunnier. Um, the track definitely doesn't like to be hot. It likes a nice cool track there at least and really any track, but definitely was noticeable there. Um, so, you know, the, the, the straight is, is preceded by a bunch of kind of S's. So if you don't get a good run through those, then you will have, you know, a slower end of straight speed, but it, it seemed like it was though more engine related overall. So, um, I mean, my, my fastest lap was, uh, like four tenths off of my previous fastest. Uh, some of the guys up front were over a second slower. So maybe it was overall an improvement. If, if, if most people were going back a second to a second and a half and I was only a few tenths back, Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. It, it didn't seem, I didn't seem like I got any closer like to kind of the front few guys. Um, yeah, the first, first race, I, um, I guess quick note, I, uh, last episode I said we were planning to live stream to uh, our page. Um, I, I wasn't able to, the, the internet there has been really, uh, spotty. Like last year I was able to get one of the races to live stream and, I was hoping this year with a, I have a new GoPro that I was going to try out versus the the Yi action cam that I had, uh, and I thought that might help because the GoPro app seemed a little nicer to deal with and everything. Um, but it didn't. It the the GoPro was streaming, but it wasn't getting picked up on the YouTube side. So so I just called it because I didn't I didn't want to uh, struggle with it all weekend. So instead, I just made sure to get good recordings and everything and then i'll just uh, i'm gonna post them up this week as well so keep an eye out for those um i'll send some links out but uh but basically first race i started third um i qualified third for it and uh i was able after a caution period i was able to get up to first for like half a lap and then just kind of kept getting picked off on the straights um and and then yeah like i'd be I'd be put out of position through a corner and then, you know, two guys would slip through like every time basically. Cause everyone was so close. So, uh, ended up seventh there that, I mean, I, I definitely felt like I could have done some better race craft there, but, um, that was a little disappointing. Ultimately my goal was always to be in the tire money. As I say, uh, mm-hmm. top five get Toyo bucks. Uh, so I was out of the tire money. So I was a little disappointed there. But then the next two, I finished fifth and fourth. So those were improvements and in the tire money. So I was happy with that. Uh, just no podiums, which is a little, usually the last few events, I've gotten at least one podium per kind of event. So a little a little upset that I 
felt like I was going a little backwards, but um, sure. But yeah, that's somewhat sometimes how it goes. It's racing, so. Right. Um, but it really, it's definitely given me a lot of motivation to uh, get my new engine, my new spec me out engine in, so I can get a whole like four more horsepower or whatever it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. But again, you know, I mean, that's like a ten percent increase in Miata horsepower. Oh, yeah, like four horsepower. Might as well double it at that point. <laughs> but so, I mean, on the note yeah. of uh, racing, not always going the way you want it to, as well. Right, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, was also racing this past weekend, and uh, they got second in class in their endurance race. Uh, and that's the fourth time. And they just keep having <laughs> issues, whether it's someone runs out of fuel and I try to get a straight answer. And judging by the lack of response, I think it was a stupid mistake on the team's part rather than something with the car. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, it's, it can be frustrating at times, you know, when, when everything should work out for you and it doesn't. Um, you know, or you just don't do as well as you expected. Um, I mean, I understand that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And like last year I, I had a very, it was, it was kind of a very, uh, measured progression. Like I went from getting into the tire money or, you know, not being out of the, out of the, out of the money, I guess you could say. Uh, and then getting into the tire money and then getting my first podium and then getting my first like double podium and then getting my first win. So like it, it was a nice progression. And then now I kind of backslid into, um, you know, not not getting a podium. But there were I mean, there's a lot of cars there and some guys that, uh, uh, of course, made improvements over the winter, too. And, you know, so everyone else isn't just sitting by you know, mm-hmm. letting, letting me get by them or whatever. So more, right. more competition's always good. So, so yeah, I just have to, I just got to step up my game. Um, you know, there's definitely, I can always drive better. More seat time's always gonna, gonna get me faster and, you know, and always shaking off a little bit of that rust from the, the off season too. Right. But, um, but then on the car side, uh, there's definitely some improvements I feel like, I can make there and one the main thing right now my main focus is the engine so uh, with that said we thought we also would maybe talk a little bit about a kind of intro to engine building this week um it's something i've i have a passion for um although i haven't done enough of it to really call myself an expert i have a lot of engines that need to be built just uh (laughs) so and you know maybe this this will be a good refresher for me um and as, since i'll be doing it on the miata the next next few weeks um uh yeah maybe maybe based on on how that goes that we can do like a part two or something go a little more nitty-gritty but uh yeah well and, and i think but, this is going to be focused on um like blueprint based engine building yes. right we're not talking about your stroker kit you know, or a D-stroker high boost setup thing, right? This is yeah, or picking which engine, or or even going crazy and making custom the crankshafts and specking custom pistons or whatever, anything like that. It's going to be more. 
uh, whether it's a stock rebuild, which effectively what a spec me out engine is, mm -hmm. or um, or yeah, or kind of your performance rebuild with you know nice off the shelf pistons and rods and everything like that. But but talking more about yeah, just the the measurements you're gonna want to take, the things you need to focus on, the tools you're gonna need, mm -hmm. uh, kind of what to look out for with what tools you should get and what's you know what's adequate or where you can kind of go over the top and gain a lot of accuracy and, and precision but um but yeah i mean it's it's uh it's something that i think i find that a lot of endurance racers are the best with for some reason is, is building engines um at least in kind of the amateur call it crap can kind of endurance stuff where most of the time people are just getting an engine out of the junkyard or <laughs> or just get an engine, slap it in there, run it. Yeah. Which I mean, we know which is fine. People. Which is fine, but there's definitely a lot to be left on the table when you're throwing in a hundred and sixty thousand mile engine and expecting it to to have the power you it was advertised at. Yeah. Sixteen um, years ago. Or yeah. Or or expect it to perform just as well as the guy who did rebuild his engine and freshen it up. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like I said, endurance racers for some reason don't focus too much on it. Uh, it's something that drag racers I'm sure are, are always looking at. And I guess kind of similar to that time attack, uh, basically drag racing, but at a circuit almost, yeah. <laughs> at least the engine builds are. Yeah. I mean, they only are, last are similar two laps or whatever right yeah same same pretty much um but yeah i mean we just i, I yeah i guess i can just kind of go through uh all the different things to look out for the different specs to measure and and how to measure them and what kind of tools to get so i guess we can start uh would you, would you rather start from the top or the bottom let's start with the bottom bottom end. the bottom okay yeah the bottom of course yeah so kind of your block and your crank, yep. um, that's going to be, you know, so your bottom end as, as, as it's referred to, um, you know, there's several different measurements here. Um, obviously you have your bore, your cylinder bore, um, which isn't as simple as just, oh, it's, you know, it's this size and you're done. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple of different things you have to look out for, um, so there's there's going to be a bore spec, obviously, depending on um, whether you're going with a stock bore or an overbore. So usually, when you're when you're rebuilding an engine, um, it's very rare for you to not be able to get it. Or if you want if you want the engine to to be fresh and performing at its maximum, you usually need to do some sort of cylinder bore to to kind of get the the cylinder back into the correct shape. So Basically, over time, as you wear an engine, usually uh, on on the piston skirts, so kind of the the I guess it's kind of along the axis of the crankshaft. the 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 piston will rub against those sides of the cylinder walls, so the, the kind of the longitudinal sides of of the engine. At least I'm thinking of a, a four cylinder, but basically, it's wherever the the rod is rocking along that kind of plane mm -hmm. um that's where it's going to rub on the cylinder walls and then over time basically it's going to egg shape 
those cylinder walls as it wears down. Um, and then another thing you can see is, is taper. So also there'll be some more wear on uh, usually kind of a lot of times it kind of tapers down, um, but it, it, you can have a lot of different wear patterns just depending on, uh, I think, a lot of different things. Um, but but taper and, and out of roundness are very important measurements when you're looking at the bore. Um, so usually every engine will have a spec for this. Um, if you go to your, uh, the full service manual for that vehicle and engine, um, uh, they'll have all these specs, uh, kind of listed out. They'll have the, the nominal spec, uh, as well as the kind of the low and the high value. And then usually there'll be a service limit as well. So th there'll be a spec that you want to stay within, but then there'll be also a service limit where maybe you could be pat, you can be past the, where they want you to be kind of low and high, um, and it'll be okay, but then there'll be a service limit where you need to, you, you have to fix it or service it past that point. Um, so, and, and so, you know, the bore will have a specific spec, but that's going to be more based on, uh, your ultimately based on your desired piston to, to cylinder wall clearance, which we'll get to into. Um, but then there's also that out of roundness and, uh, the taper. So, in order to get those numbers, uh, basically for taper, usually it, it, it re recommends measuring three different portions of the cylinder. So you're the bottom, the middle, and the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're also going to measure for your outer roundness, you're going to measure two positions, basically the X and the Y of the circle, uh, like uh, to get those two measurements. So based on those, you'll get your your uh, outer roundness by getting the X and the Y measurement within that circle. And then uh, getting the three, uh, the top, middle and bottom, you get your taper. So yeah, and I guess those will tell you. Yeah, I, sorry. I was just going to say like to, to paint a picture in your head, um, the way you're measuring this is the diameter, right? Um, so you measure straight across um, your cylinder um, and even if it's out of round uh, to the eye, it'll probably still look pretty circular. So, um, you know, just one end to the other, and then you turn your measurement device 90 degrees, and then that's how you're measuring these two, X and Y, right? And it's just relative to each other, this 90 degrees. Um, though you should orient one of those, you know, as, as Brian mentioned, um, to that plane that, you know, your, your rod is moving in. Um, and then obviously you just do that at three different places, but I guess just to kind of illustrate in the mind, since we're just talking, right, we don't mm -hmm. have any images to show of what that looks like or how you're measuring that. So when you measure that diameter, you get a number, which should be the diameter of the circle, but Hey, look at that. You have two different numbers. <laughs> Your <laughs> cylinder is shaped like an egg. So congratulations. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the egg shaping is pretty common and that's, that's going to be one of your areas where you're going to, if it gets too bad, you're going to have maybe excessive oil burn because some of that's going to sneak through those, those oval areas. Um, and then also, you know, just less compression, less, uh, you know, more, more leakage. Mm -hmm. uh so you know it, it to to be able to 
figure out if your engine has that problem. The easiest way is with a compression test. Um, so you'll, there's usually kind of a spec for whatever the engine's compression ratio and uh, maybe even displacement too. But basically there, there'll be a, a number range that you can expect to see. Maybe it's like 200 PSI or so. It's usually somewhere around there depending on the engine. Maybe more for a high compression one. Um, but if those numbers are low, it's, it could be the, the rings. Uh, and then usually one way people kind of check that is if you get a low value and then you put some oil down into the cylinder and then it, it goes up, that usually means that it's a, a ring issue. Um, so that's kind of the one way to find that out. Another way to, you can also do a leak down test, which the difference there is, so the compression test, you're just hooking the gauge up to the 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 spark plug hole and you're you're running the starter uh to just spin the engine without you know, make sure it doesn't start up by pulling the fuel pump relay or fuse or, mm-hmm. or ignition fuse or i guess you don't want fuel spraying in there so you want to disable fuel um and then and then you just let the engine pump up several rotations until it usually gets to a maximum value and you record that um, whereas a leak down test, it has a, it, it hooks up to the same area, but you pressurize the cylinder and then basically it's measuring, uh, at hundred PSI. Usually I think is the, what, it, what they spec or recommend for the gauges. But, um, basically it's measuring a, a kind of airflow, but then the gauge, the gauge records it as a percentage loss, basically. So if you, you know, if you, if you're all cylinders are at like 3%, you're, you're, you're looking pretty good. Um, cause there's always going to be some leakage. You can't, nothing can leak or nothing could usually seal perfectly. Even, uh, especially when it's cold, when you're just, if you're just doing a, a engine on a, on a stand or something. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no perfect fits in the real world. And then you also consider that you're not, you know, pumping oil through, right. Which helps that seal right around the piston ring and yeah there's yeah you're not going to get 100 yeah there's there's already gaps mm-hmm. like uh like we'll get into piston ring gaps but yep. there's there's gaps in the piston ring so ultimately there's some air going to leak through there um so but you know like some two to three percent you're looking really good that that's usually like a fresh rebuild is what you'll see there um but you know if you're starting to get the six okay it's a little more tired nine okay that's that's not the best. And then usually once you get into double digits, that starts to be concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's, what's good about the leak down test is it, it's testing both kind of that ring seal, but also your valve seals and how well the valves are sealing. So it's, it's leak down is better for identifying kind of those, uh, valve related issues. Um, and especially if the engine's out and just on like, a a stand it's very easy and even when it's not out honestly uh it's you can kind of listen for where the air is leaking into you can put your head up to like the intake manifold or the exhaust manifold and if you hear it coming out there then you know it's an exhaust valve issue intake valve issue that kind of thing so has anybody ever used um, one of those uh like knock stethoscopes to try and hear where that leak is going coming from um, I don't know. I I mean, you could probably use just a regular stethoscope. Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that could be that could be interesting. Um, there you go. Because yeah, sometimes it, it it can be tricky. <laughs> oh, Pat, 
Just just buy a bunch of doctor stethoscopes and then sell them for twice as much. So that, three times as Although, much, probably. This is motorsports we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, racing, racing, leak, leak down tester yeah, sound amplifier. This is the leak down audible locator engine omatic <laughs> 2000. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could, it could work. Could work. Although usually medical stuff is already kind of expensive for what it is. But I guess racing is a- another level sometimes. It is. <laughs> yeah, we might just have to go down to 2x of the cost since medical is <laughs> already pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so leak down and compression, those are going to be your biggest, your main tools for kind of determining engine health and kind of what to look at. So. But anyway, going back to the the measurement side uh, and the the building side. Um, so, if any of those, if those, you know, if your taper or your out of roundness is out of spec, really the only way to solve that is a is an overbore. Uh, most of the time, the minimum you'll really see is a, a a ten ten over. So that's ten thousandths or I guess one hundredth of an inch uh, overbore. Uh, 20 over is usually the common you'll find in, in like, uh, when you're ordering pistons from say like an aftermarket supplier, 20 over is, is kind of the common size I see. Uh, and some blocks, sometimes they'll have a limit to how many times you could bore it. So it depends on what you're going for. If you want maximum displacement and power, then you want to bore it as much as you can. But, uh, if you're looking at maybe looking ahead and and you want to be able to rebuild that engine again, you might want to leave it to the minimum overbore you can get away with so that then next time if you as long as you don't you know throw a rod through the block or anything next time you go to rebuild you can then just do another overbore to get it right back in in line so right um, yeah you don't want to run out of material right yes yeah and uh one area i've i saw uh, some some engine builders doing especially when they're trying to push stock blocks towards super high horsepower levels uh, is they will uh, check the, the basically the thickness of the, the bores uh, to the next bore uh, and as well as like the water jackets. Um, and then based on those measurements, you can actually offset bore those cylinders in order to basically increase the overall or at least effectively minimize that reduction in thickness that you're getting. Um, that starts to get a little more advanced. I mean, there's usually some play on the crankshaft with the rod that you can get away with a, a slight offset bore, but uh, but most of the time, that's you, most people aren't really going to worry about that. If you're uh, if you're doing that though, wouldn't that give you an egg shape? Because you're only um, it's offset, and then you're going to go for a larger bore. So then, that area that's smaller that you're not cutting into should now give you this ovular shape, right? I mean, ultimately, if you're doing an offset bore, you're limited to, you can't, you can only do a very slight adjustment there because, yeah, you still need to, it's an overbore, so you're still taking out material as long as the the new circle is at least tangent with the edge of the last circle. Yeah, so the new diameter which is larger, but is now shifted, is tangent 
to the original. Yes. Okay. I'm so tracking. yeah, if that's that's like your limit there. If you go any further, then yeah, you're gonna have some weird, weird nub, uh, kind of of the old right. core, <laughs> yeah, sticking out. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 definitely that's more on the advanced side. I I don't really, I've never messed with anything like that. That's uh, that's more on the 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 place I've seen that is like people building two JZs for drag racing uh classes where they can't like use billet blocks and you know basically they'll they'll get like four blocks in and measure the the thicknesses of everything since you know the castings can be a little different from from you know block to block so they'll find the perfect one then offset bore it perfectly and you know that's how they're going to get it to survive at 4000 horsepower <laughs> uh maybe not that much but a lot for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's not, that's not super common, but I thought it was kind of interesting when I learned about it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that kind of covers your, your, your cylinder bores. Um, so I guess we can transition to pistons since kind of determining that bore size also like the final bore size. So when we say 20 over, that's going to be, you know, 20,000 is over the nominal spec, but there's still going to be a little bit of a range there because you're going to ultimately target a piston to cylinder wall clearance. Mm -hmm. And this can be affected by a lot of things. If you're just going with a stock replacement piston, then there's going to be a spec there from the manufacturer that you're going to want to follow. Um, but if you're going with aftermarket pistons that maybe are a different material, so most... Uh, most factory engines come with a cast aluminum uh, piston. Uh, some of them, the more modern engines, come with hyper-Teutonic, hyper-Teutonic. Uh, I can never pronounce it correctly, but it's it's just a different... It's I believe it has more silicon in it. Uh, silicon, silicone, silicon. Silicon. There's I mean silicon. Uh, silicon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which... Basically, it makes it so it doesn't expand as much under heat. Um, so they're able to run much tighter cylinder to piston clearances with a hyperteutonic um, piston, which which helps in in the OEM world with you know blow by and emissions and that kind of thing, uh, and kind of keeping the engine a little quieter when it's warming up too. You can get some piston slap when you have super high clearances where it's it's just it's kind of rocking around with while it warms up until it warms up and has a nice seal you, you might get a little louder kind of engine noise it's not, it's not exactly as loud as a rod knock but it's 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 you can hear it yeah um but that's only common on your uh your next type of piston which is your kind of aftermarket forged uh, aluminum piston uh, which are usually going to be a it's 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 a 2000 series alloy forget the exact numbers but um that's your strongest um that's going to be your strongest piston material but it's going to also expand the most compared to the other kind of available alloys um and because of that you need a higher clearance uh, especially for uh super high uh, performance engines that are going to have high cylinder temperatures they're going to expand a lot more so uh, but when you refer to temperature with that 2000 series, um, and you say it's going to expand more, you mean 
compared to what else is used currently for pistons, right? Yeah. Not not all aluminums, right? Yes. Because <clears throat> many years back, people made aluminum brake rotors, right? And they used 2024 because it was the most stable at temperature. So I guess I just want to make sure I'm getting that right. It's it's going to, what you're talking about is going to change more compared to these fancy new pistons, but not necessarily compared yes. to like a 6061 that you'd find on just about anything, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so like the 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 common alloy is a twenty six eighteen, um, which is very low uh, silicon. So it's it's only it's less than point two five percent. Whereas I forget what the hyper Teutonic pistons have, but it's I think it's it's over ten percent, I believe. Um, there's also in the aftermarket sometimes you can find forty thirty two. Um, which has higher silicon as well, which is going to be better for having a tighter cold clearance. Um, but again, it's it's not as strong, especially at at those I believe at those higher temperatures than uh, twenty six eighteen, which is going to be like where you're going to get from Weissco or uh, Manly or any of those kind of aftermarket piston brands. Um, so. Uh, so you combine that uh, a piston expands more than your kind of OEM piston with, you know, if you're planning a very high performance engine build, that's going to be just have a lot of heat from just a lot of power. You know, one of the, you know, one of the losses in the combustion cycle is going to be that heat. Um, as we kind of, we kind of talked about that in the, the hybrid, uh, I believe the, the kind of, yeah, engine so. efficiency, hybrid efficiency, that kind of thing. Um, you know, heat is the by, one of the byproducts, and you know, the more power you make, the more heat you're going to have in general. Um, so that's going to mean that piston is going to expand even more. So that's when you start getting into. Usually, uh, the piston manufacturers will have a recommendation based on kind of power, the type of power adders you're going to be using, nitrous turbos, superchargers. Uh, that sort of thing, um, they'll recommend a piston to cylinder wall clearance. So ultimately the piston, when you buy it, is going to be a certain size. So you're going to change that clearance through the bore. So when you get your pistons, you're going to measure at the skirt. Usually uh, the manufacturer will kind of, uh, usually in the, in their literature, they'll have where that you should measure on the skirt. You're going to get that diameter, and then based on that, you're going to measure all your pistons, and then the, your engine builder or your machinist will then match the bores to the, the desired uh, piston to cylinder wall clearance. Um, so based on that, that should get your bore right where you need it. Um, so from there, I guess since we're on piston, we could go into piston rings. Mm-hmm. That's kind of your your next thing to worry about. So most pistons have, I mean, it's it's kind of three rings, but the the oil ring is going to be made up of three parts. But so you basically you have your your top compression ring, your second compression ring, and then your oil ring, which is made up of three rings. Um, uh, but basically, the the top compression ring that's going to be the one that's doing the first job of the sealing. 
Um, you're going to have your second compression ring, which is there kind of as a backup and to, to again, pr improve your ceiling and, um, some super fancy ultra like formula one engines and stuff will just have maybe not formula one. They might only have one ring, but I think some of the super crazy high strung, like naturally aspirated drag engines, they'll just do a single ring just to cut down on the, the, the friction losses. I forget if that's drag racing guys or if maybe F1, but anyway, I've seen it where they only have one compression ring. Okay. Um, and then your oil ring, that's going to be the one that's going to scrape. Basically, it's scraping the oil off of the cylinder uh, as the piston comes down so that there's not a bunch of oil within the combustion chamber when it's... Uh, when it's... Combusting? When it's combusting. Because <laughs> uh, there's going to be oil sprayed. Uh, basically, there's, there's oil that comes from the rod main, the rod bearing journal through the rod into the that oils the the pin the the wrist pin of the piston so that's going to kind of spray all over the place um and then also some is then also lubricating the the cylinder wall because obviously you want to lubricate the piston mm -hmm. so what that ring is doing is is scraping that oil off uh and then also kind of applying it at the same time it's 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 hard kind of hard to explain but ultimately it's it's preventing that oil from getting into the combustion process um, but it's also helping distribute that oil to the piston itself. Um, so like I said, it's made out of three pieces. It's kind of, it's just made of two thinner rings than the compression, the compression rings. Uh, and then there's kind of a spring, a, like a spring sh kind of ring in between that just holds them up together. So those two are going to, those two oil rings are going to do the, the, the two smaller oil rings held up by the kind of center spring ring is going to then do that scraping job. Um, so when you're, but when you're, so when you're building the engine, I mean the piston, if you're getting aftermarket piston will come with rings. Otherwise you'll order them separately for like an OEM piston or maybe separately from uh, aftermarket ring supplier like Hastings. Um, but you know, they're going to, they're going to be the right thickness and everything. You don't have to worry about that. It's, it's mainly the gap is what you're going to be concerned with. Um, so obviously I, I think gapless rings exist. I, I forget again, this might be like a formula one thing or something. Um, <laughs> Sounds crazy to me, but I, I believe they exist. Um, but from any, any normal engine build today, you're going to have a gap. So, right. Uh, you know, in order to get the ring onto the piston, there needs to be a gap there, um, as well as uh, there needs to be a gap there to allow for heat expansion. Right. Um, yeah, so this is now no longer a continuous circle. Right. We've just cut it so it's sort of C-shaped, except that gap is now, you know, the, the gap that determines you have a C instead of an L is incredibly small, but yes. it's not continuous anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're going to do is you're going to get your piston ring and you're going to put it in the cylinder bore. You're going to press it down with the piston to get it, make sure it's square within the bore. And you're going to get a, a, um, a feeler gauge and you're going to check that gap. Um, and, and so the manufacturer of uh, manufacturer of the ring will usually have, 
and, and it's and a lot of times it's, it's the same as the, you know the piston that you got that, that'll come with rings um, but basically the manufacturer will have a recommendation for what this gap should be based on several different factors a lot of times it's it's again gonna be kind of horsepower based or power adder based you know like we talked about with force induction those engines can run a lot hotter mm-hmm. so that's usually means you're gonna need a larger gap there um, I believe nit- nitrous engines also need uh, they, they run very very hot they need a lot big gap there too right. um, but I mean in road racing I probably I haven't really seen anyone use nitrous time attack I've seen nitrous yeah. but um, uh, but basically if you're just turbo and nitrous and making over a thousand horsepower you're gonna probably need a pretty big gap there um, relatively I mean we're still talking thousandths of an inch <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, but you'll need to increase that gap. So you'll want to increase that gap by um, uh, a lot of times it, I'd recommend that, that they make specific little filing uh, tools for it that kind of basically has a little little crank handle and a, and, a, and a little mini disc that you can then use to file. I wouldn't use like a bench grinder or a cutoff wheel or something like that. Um, you can use just sandpaper. Um, but it's a little hard to get an exact kind of flat cut there. Um, ultimately, you will want to deburr after you do your filing. So with either a small file or a little bit of sandpaper, just quickly make sure you deburr those edges so that um, you're not going to scratch the cylinder walls. Um, but yeah, once you get to the right gap, then you're you're good there. Uh, and then usually the it'll be kind of in the piston instructions, but you're going to want to space the, the ring gaps specifically. Uh, usually your your top ring is going to be in some orientation, maybe not super important. I, I think maybe it needs to not be along the skirt axis. I'm not 100% sure, but usually there's going to be a recommendation for the manufacturer. But then the next gap, the second compression ring is going to want to be 180 degrees away from that. So basically trying to space the gaps out as far as possible to prevent... Uh, leakage uh, and then finally the oil rings will also usually have a gap as well and they're going to be kind of 90 degrees from that second ring and then the the final little oil ring will be 180 degrees from the last oil ring so basically you have four separate gaps now and but they're all spaced kind of 90 degrees from each other as you kind of go down in a spiral um, so again that's just to prevent you know, uh, trying to reduce, uh, minimize that leakage that you're going to get since you have gaps there. Right. Um, now, um, but the, the, um, the potential requirement for adjusting it, um, is also dependent, I guess, on the architecture of the engine. Right. Um, and when I say architecture, I don't mean just generic layout, but as we all know, there's lots of parts that go into an engine, and they have different characteristics. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is, if you see someone do a relatively small shot of nitrous in a LS, you know, or a Gen 1, like a 350, you know, an old, yeah, your grandpa's 350, like, one of the first things all those guys will do um, is increase that cap. Um, and whether that's just sort of a 
garage mechanic, like they all think they need to. So maybe they don't, but they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that's definitely a possibility, but then, you know, you'll see some four cylinders where, uh, okay, it's naturally aspirated. I slapped a turbo on it. I'm over doubling the power and I still don't actually need to increase this gap size. So is it true that that's, it's going to be different depending on the engine? Like you can't just say, um, like a percentage based power increase requires this much change. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I mean, because if I can I over mean, double the power yeah, on I mean, one engine and not need it, but then add fifty horsepower to a three hundred and fifty horsepower engine and need to do it, it, I mean, that's definitely not a yeah percentile based. I mean, part of that's going to be like kind of your power per cylinder, right? So if if you're doing a V eight versus a four cylinder, you know, adding a hundred horsepower to that four cylinder is going to be twenty five horsepower per cylinder versus adding a hundred to that V eight is going to be uh what's that like eight point something per cylinder? Twelve point five? No, sorry. Four, yeah, sorry. And um, but so yeah, it's going to be a much. I mean, that, it's going to be a much different on the V eight, right, or less. Yeah, exactly, though. But I mean, that's what I'm getting at, right, is if the the V8, as far as I'm aware, like all signs point to it should be less, it should be able to handle the power adder better, but um, at least with LS, right? I'm not a... I don't know the ins and outs of every V8. I'm not trying to pretend I do. Um, <laughs> but increasing that gap seems to be incredibly common. And that's at a point where, you know, even power per cylinder, your percent increase is incredibly small compared to your four cylinder, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I think part of that could also be the, the, the size of the rings, you know, the different pistons and different engines and manufacturers are going to spec different kind of size rings and everything. So Mm -hmm. that's going to, that's going to affect that, that, that change in gap with temperature, um, the material, the ring, there's a couple different options for those. I, I think I've seen, um, you know, different steels and everything. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, some, some engines, the way they were designed originally, maybe the stock piston rings are, you know, super thin or some other super thick boys, um, and just require, uh, they, they just yeah have different expansion rates per, per horsepower sort of, sure. um, and then it could also be a factor of cooling and and uh, just resistance to knock and how much ignition timing it can run before you know before knock and that kind of you know kind of same thing there. But um, so yeah, I mean it's it's gonna. I mean honestly, if it, you know, ideally you could you could run a thermal simulation on your piston ring based on some temperatures you measured within your cylinder and. You know that would determine the optimal ring gap for the maximum horsepower that you're going to see or something. But you know, for the rest of us, it's just kind of going along with the recommendations and and maybe people have done it before. So, mm-hmm. um, I you know I I don't know how much power you're going to lose from an extra five thousandths of an inch ring gap. I I couldn't tell you. Um, I I haven't. So the, the way I guess 
the, the way you'd find out that you went too tight would be most likely a ring land failure. Um, if that ring binds up, it's going to probably cause the, uh, the piston or basically where that ring is sitting in the piston, it probably is going to cause that to, to break and then, you know, basically cause a pretty major engine failure. So, yeah. But, but that could also just be you get a lot of knock and it causes the piston to fail at the ring lane, which is kind of a stress riser on the piston, the edge of the piston there. So, right. you know, if you have a ring lane failure, you might think, oh, it's my gap, but it could also just be knock. Mm-hmm. So, sure. Um, yeah, those, those Jabronskis over at uh, Engine Masters who are pretty much deal exclusively with junkyard crate 350s. So I guess they're not crates, but junkyard 350s. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's what they talk about when they see ring land failures or ring failures anyway, is that um, they heat up so much. I mean, they're throwing a lot of NOS at it, but they heat up so much that it just, the ring closes that gap. And mm-hmm. then you just have this trapped volume that's still trying to thermally expand. And you get a pretty serious yep. uh, failure. Yeah. So, so yeah, going a little looser definitely won't hurt you. Just a little bit of power loss, whereas going too tight is going to be bad. So that's it's it's definitely good to err on the side of a little mo- a little bit more. Um, but again, like it's something that if you're building over you know a really experienced engine builder that has built you know 500 350s that make 500 horsepower and so they're gonna know oh this time one time we tried to go tight and it blew up so (laughs) we went a little looser it didn't blow up and you know and so you know that that's the that's one way to learn of course i'm I'm sure oems are doing all this analysis and or at least their suppliers the piston suppliers doing all this analysis to determine the optimal ring gap and and then of course for them they're more worried about like the tolerances and of manufacturing and how tight they can keep it within there you know, not as much how tight they can get it on the actual gap but more how how close they can keep that through the through making thousands of engines but mm-hmm. um but anyway uh, i guess one thing i forgot to talk about real quick before we go too far is um uh, measuring the bore, um, there's there's a couple different measurement tools you can uh, you can you can use as well as the measuring that piston diameter um, to get that piston to cylinder wall clearance. Um, I mean, so for I guess for the for the ring gap, you know, the uh, feeler gauge is really all I've seen used. Um, so that's kind of the tool for the job there. But for a cylinder bore, um, the Honestly, the best tool for the job is a dial bore indicator. I mean, you can get digital ones, I guess. It doesn't have to be a dial, but a, but a bore indicator, uh, whether it's digital or dial. I honestly like the dial ones because it, I don't know, it's it's kind of easier for me to read. It's the numbers are kind of jump around on a digital one, whereas you can see exactly where that dial is moving and where you're. You can see it. You can see it as you're rocking it in the bore to get that maximum measurement you can see it get to the maximum and then overshoot you know and then then mm-hmm. come back down it kind of goes up and down up and down and so it's it's easy to see yeah right where you get it and honestly usually the dial ones are are cheaper than the digital yeah um, all my measurement tools are dial 
Cause yeah. I mean, what you just described, and they're also not going to run out of battery. Um, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's just. I do like digital calipers. Um, ah, dude. <laughs> Scrub I've calipers. I've used that ones too. Um, but um, so I mean, so I've seen people use um. So there's I forget I forget exactly what they're called, but there's these little like kind of telescoping bore gauges that yeah, you like the spring put down in the thing. bore. Yeah. It spring loads out and, and gets that measurement or gets that distance. You pull it out and then you measure it with either a caliper or hopefully a micrometer. Right. Um, and that's how you get your bore. The problem I have with those is it's, like, you have no, you have no way to tell, like I said, when you're rocking the dial bore, indicator in the bore and it's getting up to that maximum point and then coming back down you have no way to determine if you reach that point with a with one of those telescoping spring-loaded measures so you could spring it out boom pull it out but as you pull it out you might rock it slightly and then it expands a little bit or Mm -hmm. um yeah so that um, spring-loaded action as soon as you take it off of perpendicular from the bore axis you might actually measure larger than what it actually is. Yes. Right. So. Yeah, and, and sorry, I think I misspoke earlier with the dial indicator. It's more finding that, that minimum, that minimum bore size, because that's that's your ultimate measurement. I think I was saying maximum earlier. Um, so yeah, if you, if so, as you're pulling that telescope and gauge out, I mean, it's supposed to lock, like it spring loads out, and you, I think you can like lock it down, mm-hmm. but there's no way of telling if you got it exactly on that point. Right. I mean, so as you pull it out. So even, yeah. even if you have a lock before you pull it out, the thing is when you're locking it, like when it is in the bore, you have no gauge to yep. like see how perpendicular it is, you know, so that, and then, I mean, when we're talking, you know, a thousandth of an inch, the very small angle change has a huge impact on what you're measuring. You know, so it's not something I like to do there specifically. Um, Yeah, just just because you can't repeatedly tell that like, you know, you're you're shoving this measurement tool in by hand. You're not fixturing it in any way. It's it's not sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're introducing you're you're introducing error there. Mm -hmm. Um with that you know as it springs out and you lock it down um but then also you're adding an extra amount of error by now having to measure that with your micrometer hopefully the caliper can't really unless you get really really expensive ones i mean for the most part they're going to be within five thousandths but that's not going to be enough you know you need a micrometer which is going to be on the the ten thousandths range uh i guess as I've seen them, I guess calipers I've seen. Sorry, on the the ha- half a thou, half a uh, at least ten thou, right? So I guess I I don't know about the plus or minus on the caliper themselves, but most of them read out to the thousandth of an inch, yes. and some digital ones have a half after that. Mm-hmm. So it would yep. be a half of a ten thousandth. Yes. Or five ten thousandths. Yes. So yeah. So, but my chronometer is going to go down to the ten thousandth. Yeah. Which is it's 
it, it, cause it's not only what it can measure, but it's, it's also that accuracy. Um, and a lot of times, you know, calipers, they'll be advertised within the, within the 10,000th of an inch accuracy. So, um, but of course it it depends on how you use it too. You, you can be very inaccurate too. So right. if you, if you don't get that, you know, micrometer perfectly on that, that spring loaded gauge and maybe it, compresses in just a little bit as you're as you're putting the micrometer on it because uh, you're applying a little bit of pressure as you're you know dialing it in it usually has that little knob that kind of clicks when you're there but that still puts some pressure on it so it's it's just introducing a lot of extra error which again when we're trying to measure within thousandths and ten thousandths of an inch um yeah, this all matters you can't you can't really afford it you know it's, it's the difference between being at an out around spec or having it be okay and mm-hmm. thinking you need to overbore or whatever in order to fix that. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, a lot of these spring loaded gauges we're talking about too. Um, yeah, I have rounded edges, which is very understandable. That's how you touch two points rather than if you had a flat, you wouldn't actually be able to, you know, um, the two edges of the flat would interfere before you're actually getting that measurement. So, that's the way it should be shaped. But on that note, when you're trying to measure it, when it's out of the cylinder bore, now you're trying to hold a mic or calipers, preferably a mic, right? Up to two rounded faces. Um, and now you're trying to make sure that that mic is at the furthest distance uh, it can be between those two, you know, points. It's, yeah, it's... Um, just we're throwing in a lot of headache here so <laughs> yeah yeah so those those aren't those aren't my favorite ultimately a dial bore gauge which you know anytime you go to a engine builder or a machine shop or whatever that that's what you're going to see them using so so our recommendation is yeah, if you're planning to build and and blueprint a lot of engines to go out and buy a nice set of dial indicators. Again, if you get some Amazon China junk, you might as well just get uh, might as well just not as not bother. It, uh, I don't think you have to buy the most expensive. You can it, you can find online. There's usually a, a good middle ground. I mean, I've seen like Fowler, although made in China, they they have some decent stuff. Yeah, I, um, honestly, I don't know. Um, but I would, it for for engine stuff, I would ball out or just not do it, you know. Like yeah. My, I mean, my calipers are decent enough for making parts, you know, where I need a tolerance of under five thou. But I'm not trying to do this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I guess to me to tell you, I guess I found with um, for this. Yes, and so I, I personally have Mitutoyo dial bore gauges. I balled out, um, yeah. and I really, I really like them. They're very, very nice. Um, <laughs> and uh, I do have Fowler uh, micrometers. Uh, so I did what I ended up doing is taking it into uh, when we we're working at Pratt Miller. Uh, they would, uh, assuming they were assuming, you know, we we'd be using these for work, which you know, every once in a while I would, but they would let you once a year go in and have, have basically they would, they would calibrate. So, you know, they would, they would have all their calibrated standards 
uh, you know, one inch, two inch, three inch, you know, they're all exactly, you know, within a thousandth of an inch, the exact dimension. So then you measure that and that tells you if, you know, if it's measuring accurately. So they'd check it to that and then they'd zero, or, you know, they'd zero out the, uh, uh, the micrometer and, you know, they were able to calibrate it. Uh, so that means is accurate enough to, to pass their calibration. So, but again, obviously not everyone has access to a, you know, quality group that'll do that. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, it, it worked for me. So, cause, um, though I was able to get away with the, cause there was a big increase from the Fowler to the Mitutoyo, uh, uh, micrometers. So I, I tried to see if I could find that middle ground there and it seems to have worked because part of the problem there though, is, um, when you're setting a, so usually what you do with a dial bore gauge is you, uh, you set the, you set a micrometer to the bore, the basically expected bore size or the, what you, the nominal spec of the bore. And then you zero your dial indicator to that. And then based on that, um, that then you put in the bore and you kind of get your differential measurement to, to a certain number, uh, that you set the micrometer to. Um, so ultimately if your micrometers aren't accurate, then your dial bore gauge won't be accurate because you're setting it based off of, uh, that, that dimension on the micrometer. So that's kind of a, a caveat to, to look out for. If you, if you buy crappy micrometers and using a dial bore gauge, you're kind of defeating the purpose of it. so basically it, the alternative to all of this of balling out on super nice Starrett Minutoyo, you know, measurement tools is to just have your machinist uh, do the measurements. They, they will usually do them for you. If you ask, of course, there's going to be some sort of hourly rate there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not trying to make this your hobby, I mean, not racing, but specifically engine building, you know, one to two rebuilds is paying someone is probably going to end up being cheaper, right? Oh, yeah. So so that's, you know, if you're not planning to do a lot of engines, then definitely, and yeah, have have them take care of it. And just what, what I've done in the past is when I drop an engine off, I, I try to, for the measurements they're going to take and for the ones they, you know, there's certain ones they're going to have to take no matter what, because of, um, say the piston or cylinder wall clearance, they're going to, you're going to want to give them the pistons so they can measure them. And then they're going to do the bore, you know, uh, bore out your block. And they're going to obviously need to measure that to make sure they bored it out to the correct dimension. Um, so they're going to have all those measurements. So what I've done is give them like basically this kind of printout sheet that has all the dimensions I'm looking for little, you know, blank boxes for them to put the numbers in nice and easy. So, uh, I found that was uh, good. So they didn't have to write it on like some napkin or something, you know, get, give it to you. Like it's, it's all set up so they can just quickly put the numbers in and make it easier on them. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, so if you're, if you're, if you want to be serious with this, you're going to want, uh, a nice set of dial bore gauges and a nice set of micrometers. Um, for your dial bore gauges, you're you're going to want sizes because there's usually a range that they can each one can measure. You're also going to want sizes small enough to do the uh, rod rod and main journals um, for the bearings in order to get kind of accurate, much more accurate measurements there too. Which 
there are also there are there are there are also some alternatives there um to measure that um um i guess we could just get right into it um so i guess so we've covered bores uh we covered the pistons we covered the rings yeah but still on the bottom um, end we got those bearings so now on the bottom end we have bearings so you have your your main bearings which are what support the crankshaft and then your rod bearings which are supporting the rods mm-hmm. um so and if we're starting from the main i mean just mm, sorry just super simple uh mains connect the crank to the block rods connect mm-hmm. the rods to the crank right yes so. Yeah, so, and, you know, the crankshaft's riding on a, just an oil bearing or kind of a, a journal bearing, which we kind of described in the, when we we're talking about turbos, but, you know, journal bearing, it's it's mainly just a, a kind of a softer, it'll be a softer metal uh, and then an oil film. Uh, and then, so the oil is coming through, usually there's a, there's a hole within that journal that goes through the bearing and then oils the bearing itself. And then that, that the crankshaft or rod will then ride on that, that oil film. And then ultimately that softer metal bearing is there in order to, if, if for some reason you don't have a strong film there, it'll at least prevent it from touching down kind of steel to steel and just, you know, creating huge gashes immediately. It'll, it'll wear the bearing instead of the, the nice machine metal parts that determine those clearances. Um, so the bearing is there to protect the, the, the good stuff, the, the, the block itself. Cause if you, if you, if you were to touch down and, you know, wear completely through the bearing, which obviously happens when usually referred to as spinning a bearing, uh, basically it'll, you wear it down enough that it loses its, its hold base. There, there's usually these two little tangs that hold the bearing in place. It'll, if you get it thin enough, it'll just, you know, it'll cause the bearing to spin within the journal and it'll just and and then the bearing itself will just start to disintegrate and eventually you just have metal to metal contact and once you destroy those those journal surfaces where the bearing sits uh either you can repair but a lot of times you you can potentially junk the block and definitely the crank um so um you know bearings are super important um and determining that bearing uh, clearance to the journal is is also very important um, so one way you can do this is with plastic age. It's kind of probably one of the more popular ways that you'll see people doing it. Um, it can be accurate. I've seen some, you know, YouTube videos that's super accurate and, and never false YouTube videos, um, of people trying out plastic age multiple times and then also doing dial bore gauge measurements. And a lot of times they'll, they'll find that they, they do a pretty good job of staying consistent. I would say, you know, if if you're just doing a stock rebuild of your daily driver or whatever, I think plastic age is perfectly fine. Um, but if you're trying to make a super high-strung race engine and you need those bearing clearances really accurate and tight or because uh, you're trying to run 0W20 oil to have the least amount of power loss possible and all that kind of stuff, then you're going to want you know, the most accurate tools you can get. So, so basically the bearing clearance, again, this is something that, uh, there'll be an OE spec, um, that you, if you're just building to stock or very close to stock power levels, 
you're just going to follow that spec. There's going to be a range and then a service limit. Um, but if you're going kind of big turbo mega power, um, that's when you're going to probably want to go outside of that spec. Basically you'll, you'll go big, uh, usually, um, with the idea being the larger that clearance is, uh, the more, the more oil film you can get. And so it'll kind of add an extra cushion for, you know, high horsepower per cylinder engine. Um, but that's, that's more common on your like big drag racing engines or your thousand horsepower, four cylinders or 2000 horsepower, two JZs and that kind of stuff. So, um, maybe not as important for, especially for like a road racing build, you're going to want to kind of, you're basically want to stay to the spec. Um, and then you're going to tailor it towards your desired oil. So I kind of talked to that about that a little bit earlier. Um, uh, one way to change your oil pressure within the engine that kind of the inherent oil pressure is by adjusting those clearances. If you go really big, it's going to lower your oil pressure, uh, cause it promotes more flow and less pressure loss. Um, and then if you reduce those clearances, it's going to increase your oil pressure. Um, and then you can adjust your oil pressure through the weight of the oil as well. Uh, so if you're trying to run with really thin oil, then you're going to want to run tighter bearing clearances. But of course, there's a limit to how tight you can go before you start causing issues. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, basically the way that's usually uh, the way I prefer to measure that bearing clearance is you use a micrometer to measure that journal size. And again, you're going to want to measure in two spots kind of along an X and a Y axis basically. So, you know, you measure one point and then 90 degrees from that measure that again, you get those two di diameters. Cause again, outer roundness is going to be a spec on the crankshaft, uh, uh, as well as, you know, the cylinder bores. Um, so you're going to want to check that, make sure it's not out around cause, um, that can create some problems and you're going to need to, to get the crank either polished or potentially reground, uh, if it's out of spec. Um, and then, uh, once you get that measurement, you then get your dial bore gauge with the bearings installed and the, if you're doing the rods, uh, or the mains, basically we need those bearing caps, uh, torque to spec. Um, and then you, you measure that diameter and then you basically, you have your, your pin, your, your journal side, or your, your kind of the, the crank pin or the main pin, basically the main journal pin or the rod pin, you have those diameters, you have your bearing outer diameter. And by subtracting the bearing diameter from the pin diameter that you have your clearance, and then you compare that to the spec. So again, you can use, you can use plastic gauge, uh, for this, but, um, I mean, if you're already balling out for some dial indicators and, or, uh, you might as well get the correct ones for your, your bearing sizes too. Um, so that, you know, that can be very important there. Um, one kind of bonus measurement that I, I think I haven't really seen, uh, at least specifically when I was building a 4G63, um, uh, one of the concerns was the clearance side clearance of the rod to the, uh, side of the crank journal. Um, basically it was too tight on some engines specifically for a 4G63 for Mitsubishi. Um, it's at least for really high horsepower 
and kind of bigger rod bearing clearances uh, by not having enough side clearance, uh, basically it couldn't let the oil flow through that bearing and out, out the, the sides of the rod uh, fast enough and could cause some, some issues there. So um, that's something to maybe look out for if you're building higher horsepower kind of engines. Um, I'm not sure if it's as applicable to other things other than 4G63s, but again, another interesting tidbit I learned while building one of those engines. Um, so, okay, so that, I mean, that gets us basically through the bottom end. Um, so there's also, I guess, the last thing on the bottom end, so the top of the bottom end, and that's your um, your deck, uh, your cylinder deck. Uh, so there's going to be a, a flatness spec for that. Um, uh, how that's usually measured is with a straight edge, and we're not talking like you just grab a ruler from the desk and you slap it on there, and or a piece of wood or, or a piece of scrap metal you've laying around. It's a straight edge will be a very specific. Uh, basically, it looks like a ruler, but it has machined edges on the top and bottom, uh, where they, you know, perfectly as well, well not perfectly, but as to a certain tolerance, they flatten it. Um, you know, during the machining process of that of the straight edge uh, within a certain spec, and that that makes it basically very close to perfectly flat. Uh, and then you, you so you put that on top of the deck, uh, and then you. You do the same process for the uh, the uh, cylinder head, uh, uh, you know, ceiling surface. Uh, but basically, you put it on that that the deck, and then you get a feeler gauge, and you feel what the maximum thickness you can kind of fit in different spots along the the cylinder head. So usually, you measure kind of uh, along the top of the cylinder head, uh, cylinder blocker head, the bottom, the middle, and then you usually do some like crosses as well to try to get as many places along, along it as possible. And, uh, again, there's going to be a, a spec for this and as well as a service limit. Um, ideally if you're, if you're planning to run a multi-layer steel head gasket and not like a normal, say composite style one, um, you're going to want that to be super duper flat. Like there's like almost no margin for error there. So, um, if you're if you're planning to run one of those, which you know multi-layer steel gaskets are usually much better for higher horsepower, high boost, high cylinder pressures, um, you're gonna want that. One, you're gonna want to get it ground, uh, you know, ground flat. Uh, but also the surface finish can also be important. But um, but if you're just doing a kind of a, a stock rebuild with a standard OEM composite head gasket, then uh, you don't have to be too concerned. You're mainly concerned with that. Uh, flatness uh measurement with the field gauges so if you're able to stick in a, a field gauge that's beyond the spec limit then that means you're going to want to get that resurfaced at the machine shop um, and then every head is gonna and usually block as well is going to have a kind of grinding limit mm. uh, so that's one other thing to look out for if you if you just grind all because you know one way to kind of effectively increase your compression ratio is to grind off as much of the head and block as possible. You're basically making that, um, the, the kind of, uh, the, I guess the, the, the compression yeah. area, the, the, the quench zone in the cylinder head, the, the, the Hemi 
dome, whatever you want to call it, uh, you're making that effectively smaller, uh, which changes the compression ratio, which, you know, compression ratio is just the difference in, in, in volume between when the piston's all the way down and the piston's all the way up. Um, so by changing, you're, you're, you're changing, slightly changing when it's fully down, but you're kind of more greatly changing when it's fully up, but ultimately it's, it's reducing that ratio. Um, well, it's increasing the ratio, uh, right? Sorry, yeah, increasing the ratio, reducing the the volume, I guess, on the when when it's when it's all the way up, which is going to increase that ratio. So, mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times the some say in spec Miata, some engine builders will just grind it all the way down to the limit. Uh, but then, of course, if there's any problems with the head, there's no really bringing it back because now you you've ground it down to the the, the limit where you're going to start getting into maybe water jackets and stuff like that so um, ideally you want to just grind it as much as basically you need to to get it flat um, but sometimes if you're going all out performance you'll just grind it all down but of course you gotta look out for piston the valve clearance and things like that you can't just go crazy there so um, but that's that's a little, probably a little more that's maybe more for another day talking about, you know, high performance cams and valve clearances and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Mainly just talking about, you know, getting your engine back to full running potential or just assembling your, your performance engine. So, um, but anyway, uh, so that kind of, that gets most of the main measurements you're going to worry about on the bottom end, you, know, you can, certain engines are going to have specs for like the oil pump and things like that. But, um, otherwise, uh, I guess one quick thing that the piston, uh, sometimes there's a spec for like the piston, uh, the, the wrist pin, the piston pin. Um, but there's really not much I've ever seen done there. It should be in spec based on just the manufacturing tolerances. So, there's really no added gap or anything I've ever seen. Uh, I guess the only thing to look out for is uh, usually OEM pistons. Most of the time the wrist pin is pressed into the rod uh, and then the piston itself is, is, is loose on it. Whereas uh, kind of a fully floating pin as they'll call it uh, in, a, in kind of aftermarket pistons and rods, uh, basically the pin will float both on the rod itself and the piston and Due to that, there's there's an extra oiling journal on the the small end of the rod in order to to lubricate that that pin, um, and that could just create. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's it's exactly for performance. Honestly, I I haven't really looked into it. It, it could just be for ease of them manufacturing those parts and not having to worry about a press fit, and it's easier for you to put to put them together. Um, I, I imagine there's really no, because if anything, you're adding an extra sliding portion, um, which I don't think is really a benefit, but, um, but mainly when, when you do performance pistons, the, the main thing is they'll give you a super beefy, thick pin, which is going to, you know, resist bending and be a lot stronger. Um, so that's the, but, but a lot of times they'll be floating. Um, so, um, but usually there's not really much you can, you're going to change there. I guess check to make sure that it's not binding up because if so, then you're probably going to return, want to return that piston to get or that pin to get the correct uh, part from the manufacturer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that I mean that gets us through the bottom end, the the top end. There's, I'd say there's there's a lot of measurements you can do, um, but for your basic rebuild, not too much. Um, like I said, you're gonna want to measure your head flatness, which is usually gonna be where you're gonna find the most warpage. Most engines nowadays, at least most, I guess most older engines are going to be iron block aluminum head uh, with the, all the latest new engines being aluminum block aluminum head. So with aluminum blocks, you can get definitely get some warpage there. Um, but when it comes to iron block aluminum head, anytime you overheat the engine, a lot of times the warpage comes from the uh, the head side since the aluminum is going to distort a bit more under heat than the uh, cast iron. Um so, um, so yeah, making sure that's flat to get a good head gasket seal, very important. Um, and then from there, I mean, you have your, your valve seats, you're going to want to get reground. Uh, usually there's just a basic kind of single angle cut done from the factory. Uh, and then you can go fancy, um, uh, at the machine shop doing a, a multiple angle valve job. Basically what that's doing is is just kind of it's going to reduce the kind of contact between the valve and the seat which can reduce its kind of the seat's lifetime but in a race engine maybe not as important if you're rebuilding it often especially with the you know high dollar pro engines uh, they're going to not really care too much about replacing stuff um but what it will do then is basically it'll allow more air sooner through the valve opening as it opens by kind of minimizing that resistance, making, allowing the air to pass through easier as the valve starts to open. Um, so, you know, that's that's where you can gain a little bit of performance doing a, a three-angle or even five-angle valve job, as they call them. Um, basically, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's increasing, it's reducing the contact with the valve and then kind of increasing that kind of taper uh, on the transition between the, the cylinder head intake ports and exhaust ports and the valve itself. So it's just promoting more airflow through there. Um, um, but I, so from there, if you're doing, if you need to ground, ground, if you need to grind the valve seats as well as maybe grind down the valve itself to a lot of times uh, high mileage engines will have some almost like cupping or mushrooming of the valve. Uh, basically it won't be flat anymore at the valve seat. Uh, you're going to want to get those valves ground down to, to that 45, usually it's a 45 degree angle um, in order to meet with the, at least the middle angle of your three or five angle valve job or, or single angle um, uh, in order to get a good seal there. Um, if you're not doing a, if you're not getting your valve seats ground, uh, a lapping can be can be done to solve a lot of sealing issues. So basically, you're just putting a abrasive compound on the valve, and then you're pushing it up against the valve seat and just using the valve itself to basically kind of remachine that uh, valve seat to to mate better with the valve. If you're doing a fresh valve grind and valve seat grind, then you don't need to do that. It'll it should be perfect you know from the machine shop Uh, but if you're not then lapping can help uh if you do do some valve seat grinding it's going to change the height of basically it's going to reset that valve into the cylinder head which is going to change 
basically where the retainer ends up for the valve spring, um, which is going to basically extend the valve spring. It'll make your valve spring install height uh, longer, as well as change kind of that height of the, the valve tip to the you know rock arm or whichever whatever the geometry of your cylinder head valve train is uh, so potentially you're going to need to grind down the valve a little bit to to correct that difference as well as uh, now you're going to need to potentially shim uh, your valve seats in order to get your valve spring installed height within spec um, uh, so Again, another thing to look out for. That one can be a little difficult to measure. Uh, in my experience, basically, I've uh, taken uh, not exactly welding rod, but something a little thicker, uh, and measured it to, to the correct, basically cut it down and sanded it down to the correct height, and then use that as kind of a gauge. Basically, you install the valve seat, or the, sorry, the valve spring, uh, uh, retainer, uh, you install it on there without a valve spring, uh, by you kind of tap, you, you put, put it roughly on the valve and then basically pull the valve through the, the valve guide and, and kind of tap it in to seat the valve, uh, the, the valve, the, the keepers along with the valve spring, uh, uh, seat. And then, you measure that distance between the machined kind of surface where it sits. It, usually there's like a, uh, a separate valve seat piece that you put in there. So, so you measure that distance effectively, you're measuring where the spring would be. And then you, uh, shim the, the valve seat, uh, accordingly in order to get that correct height. Uh, cause at the worst case, you basically, you have no preload on your valve spring there. So any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of air in the in kind of in the intake manifold can almost basically press it open, especially with boost. Um, so, uh, but usually it's not, it's not going to be that bad. It's just going to be, you're, you're just going to want the correct preload that the manufacturer set on the valve spring for correct uh, kind of wear as well as, uh, you know, spring valve spring performance basically. So, uh, I guess one thing you could do is shim it a little tighter to, to add some more preload. Um, but then you just have to worry about, uh, binding up that spring. So you just need to know at the maximum valve lift, uh, as long as you're not bottoming up that spring, you're okay. Um, I guess, I mean, you can, there's other things you can measure like your valve guide diameters. I, the, those are so small. I'm not exactly sure what you'd use to measure those. Because uh, we're talking a couple millimeters, so Probably just plug gauges, sure there's right? certain. I th yeah, I think there's there there are some gauges you can get. Yeah, you could just do pin gauges, or um, I think I have seen some. They're almost kind of like those spring loaded gauges, but they're just like a little like ball detent thing that like pops out. But uh, usually with those, I mean, if if the engine is older, you're just gonna want to replace your your valve guides anyway. Um, but you know, you could measure, you could measure with some like, uh, uh, gauge pins, uh, kind of go, no go gauges basically, um, in order to determine if you need to, to, to replace those. Uh, a lot of times I, I find that it's not super necessary. Uh, the more important thing is usually your valve stem seal, 
Um, but you know, no machines really needed for that. That's just replacing that part. Um, uh, yeah. And then from there, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of everything. There's usually, you're usually not going to measure, say your, your camshaft journals or anything like that. Uh, if, if you need to repair those, it's pretty hard to, some shops will do it, but, um, it's, it's not very, it's not very, it's not a common repair. Um, I guess the last thing, which I actually missed on the bottom end is, um, uh, is crankshaft end play. Uh, so that's usually going to be determined by your, there's going to be a thrust bearing somewhere on the crankshaft. Uh, sometimes it's integral to one of the main journal bearings, but other, other times it'll be a separate piece. Um, I think for a 4G63, it depends on the year, whether it's a two-piece or a three-piece, basically, or a one-piece. I think Miatas have a have a three-piece as well. What? It just depends on if it's a separate part, basically. What is it on the crank walkie years of the 4G63? <laughs> well, again, it depends on the year. Um, the seven-bolt crank walking ones, uh, I believe it is a, a three-piece um and i think the one of the problems might have been that that bearing thickness or, or something i it's 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 still like an urban legend exactly what causes crank walk um some people just say it's just bad manufacturing tolerances other people say it's because everyone immediately puts a heavy-duty clutch in their car and and just causes a lot of extra kind of, you know, force, especially on startup when there's low oil pressure. Um, another theory I think is, is, is stuck open oil squirters that just cause low pressure in one of the bearings and cause it to spin. Um, yeah, you know, just a lot of theories, but, um, but yeah, I believe it's a, a three piece on those seven bolts, at least the later seven bolts. It, again, like it seems like they, they just kept changing it over and over again, but, um, but anyway, uh, basically your, your, your thrust bearing is what resists kind of the side to side clearance that the crankshaft can have. And, um, that end play is going to be determined by the clearance from the, there's usually a machine surface on one of the crank journals, uh, to that thrust, thrust bearing. So, uh, most of the time you should be within spec as long as you replace that bearing and there's no extra wear on the crank. Uh, but it is one thing to check. And you, so you're going to need a dial indicator in order to check that. So basically you're going to set it up on the end of the crank and you're going to put a pry bar on it and just pry it one way, pry it the other way. And you're going to get that end play measurement. Um, too much can of course just cause uh, issues with that. It could cause kind of binding with the rod. It, it could um, kind of close off that gap between the rod and the crank, which could cause oil issues. So, Definitely something important to, to look out for. Um, but yeah, I think as far as kind of basic uh, putting your engine together, I think that kind of covers everything. I kind of just kept rambling on and on there, but that's par for the course here at Motorsports Tech Talk. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, is anything else you would like to add, Eric? Oh, um I don't think in this 
forum, not in this uh, shorter rebuild section, you know? Yeah, I, I guess one thing I just remembered is we talked about bore taper. Um, you should also watch out for rod and main journal taper on the crankshaft too. Those those can be important too. Um, so again, you're just going to take two measurements from two points on that along the journal in order to get that, or at least a minimum of two. So there's just ultimately uh, basically go through your the service manual for that engine and car and. It'll have all the specs uh, that you need to do, and usually step by step, of course. That's the, what the manual's for, in order to measure all of those. So, ultimately, uh, if you, it, you know, like we said, if you're not looking to to do a lot of engines, you can have your machinist or your engine builder do a lot of this. But if you're looking to do it yourself, and or at least learn how it's done, that's basically we we want to just go through everything we know of for for building an engine so mm -hmm. um we hoped it was helpful for you um uh you know as always uh if you if you want to reach out to us we have our social medias at motorsports tech talk on instagram facebook uh, uh feel free to give us a follow or subscribe on our youtube and uh youtube or uh spotify itunes all that um but uh but as always thanks again for listening and sticking with us this long and uh we hope to see you guys again soon see you